Well, this is a quite a large chunk of text today, larger than I typically would want to take in one sitting. But I guess if we go long, I guess we could just run it straight into evangelism training at four. Now it won't be that long. Ruth is a historical narrative. It's a narrative of a story. It's not a doctrinal thesis. Romans, as you all know, by comparison, is a book of doctrine. Often every, every interpretation hangs on one word or another. For example, Romans says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. It's written into a, the form of a legal document. So you're constantly trying to interpret and define words. What does it mean that God's wrath is deserved? How do we define wrath? What is truth? How do sinners suppress it? All these things have to be answered in a doctrinal presentation like that. It takes time to flush them out. In comparison, when we read a classic short story like Ruth, God expects us to glean as much from the storyline as he does from the individual definition of each word. That doesn't mean that every word isn't equally important or precise. They are. But in a narrative, we learn by observing the lives of the characters involved. What does a person admire about Job when he's stricken with the sores? What does a person not like so much about King Saul? These are historical narratives. About 40% of the Bible is written in this form. So my challenge this week was winnowing out the main point that God wants out of this text and then deciding where to cut it off. Um, when is the point made? And we could probably literally talk for weeks about this section, these 18 verses. We could ask, what were the Mosaic requirements of leaving the corners of your field, providing for the poor, etc.? We could study in detail the structure and function of the Hebrew clan and the field workers and maidservants. What does that look like? We could spend a whole sermon defining theologically what it means to seek refuge under the wings of God, all in this text. But I don't think that these details are what God primarily wants to magnify when he inspired the prophet to write this letter, especially this section. Pursuing too much detail in this section might cause us to overlook the majesty of this forest in an attempt to study every individual tree. As we cover these 18 verses, I would encourage you to concentrate, especially on the character of these two individuals, Boaz and Ruth. The reason God put this section in his Bible is so we can observe the lives of Boaz and Ruth learn about the righteous character, and reflect on our own lives by what we see. So let's begin in verse 1, chapter 2. Now Naomi had a kinsman, that means a relative of her husband, a man of great wealth from the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. The King James translates this, a mighty man of wealth. The NIV says a man, man of standing. ESV translates this, He's a worthy man. Boaz is a man of great worth. 
phrase doesn't merely suggest money either. It's much more broad than that. Denotes his prized character. The person of Boaz is very valuable to society. He's distinguished, he's capable, he's courageous. He's an exemplary model of high integrity. These are, by the way, the same Hebrew words that are used to describe Gideon in the book of Judges as a mighty man of valor. So right out of the gate, the writer suggests to the reader, you and I, we'd want to emulate Boaz. He's our model. It tells us he's of the family or clan of Elimelech. You remember two weeks ago when we were studying about Ruth and Naomi, at that time Orpah, who were on the road between Moab and Judah, and we discovered that they had no more clan left to take care of them, to protect them, to provide for them. Women alone like that in this society might easily become victims. Well, now entering stage left, we have Boaz. And he does not resemble that crazy cousin or uncle that each of us has. Boaz is a man of distinguished character. In fact, he reflects a lot of the qualities of Jesus Christ. In verse 2, And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after one who, in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field of the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was, again, the family of Elimelech, her deceased father-in-law. Now, similar to Boaz, Ruth is no moral slouch. She's promised her impoverished and widow mother-in-law that she'd never desert her, and that she was never going to allow anything to happen to her, and that nothing would separate them. Remember, Naomi is now quite old, too old to marry, according to her own words, certainly too old to have children. So somebody has to provide for her. This now has fallen on Ruth. 1 Timothy 5.16 says, If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened. In the same chapter, Paul writes, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially those of his household... He's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Believers have the front-line responsibility of caring for their family. That responsibility doesn't automatically go to the state, nor to the church. According to the pastoral epistles, the church doesn't financially step in with the widow until she is unable or too old to work and that she has no other income resources. She's a widow indeed. Today, that gets very complicated. With the tax system we have and and mandated government programs and social services stepping in, very often, the church starts playing second fiddle. That's the way it is. That's a whole separate sermon in itself. But I would say it is to the spiritual detriment of the church not have that opportunity to meet needs in the same way. But in Ruth's day, assistance for basic survival needs existed in the form of grain gleanings. Paul, the apostle, said, with food and covering, with these we shall be content. Those are our basic needs. When 
with gleanings, you could eat them. Or if you worked hard and you were able to get a large enough portion, you might be able to take a portion and trade them in the marketplace for some meat or for some clothing or other supplies. And Ruth takes the initiative here, and she sets out to provide for both her and for Naomi, her dependent widow. And verse 3 said that she happened to come to Boaz's field. The Hebrew more literally says, her chance chanced, or by chance she chanced upon. Now this doesn't imply at all that God was not in control of the situation or the circumstances. Scripture consistently teaches otherwise. Instead, it affirms that Ruth is not in control of the circumstances. She did not knowingly approach a wealthy relative's field. She didn't purposefully stop there to shake down a wealthy relative to see if she could get something. What did she go there to do? She went there to work. In verse 4, now, Bo- now behold, that means pay attention, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. So like Jesus, we see Boaz is of the tribe of Judah and originates from Bethlehem. He also speaks the language of faith. May the Lord be with you. It's with a spiritual tone that he greets his reapers, his workers. And as Christians, we've gotten really good at this. God bless you. I'll pray for you. Give it all to the Lord. We have a mighty God. So Boaz can talk the talk, but the question is, can he walk the talk? What we need to ask of this text is, is Boaz esteemed in his community, and has he gotten a reputation for being a mighty man of valor because he talks real spiritually? Is that as far as his faith goes? Because in James 2, chapter 2, verse 14, it teaches us, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, and be filled. Now that's spiritual talk. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, What use is that? Even so, faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Our text will reveal that Boaz is more than talk. We're in a rural agricultural setting, out in the middle of the country, and he goes to his field and Boaz takes a look around, and he sees someone that hasn't been there before. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, this is his foreman, whose young woman is this? The servant in charge replied to the, re- the reapers replied, she is the Mo- young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She's been sitting in the house for a little while. The foreman confirms the identity of the girl. She's the one. The story of Naomi and Ruth had gotten around. If you remember back in chapter 1, when they arrived in Bethlehem, it said the whole city was stirred about them. So the women were talking to one another about them. 
And we know if the women are talking to one another about them, where is the news going to trickle down to? It's going to trickle to the men in the evening. And they're going to hear all about this story of how they had left Moab to come back under the wings of the Lord. So this foreman and Boaz had both previously heard the news about how Ruth had turned from her past, sworn allegiance to the God of Israel, and made a vow of loyalty to, to Naomi. The news had trickled out, probably from Naomi, that Ruth had made this oath. But a lot of people make oaths, right? Vows happen all the time. I'll do better next time. I'll be more honest. I'm going to change. This is the last time that happened. It's very easy to make vows. It's more difficult to follow through on vows. But if someone's truly had a heart change, if they're truly repentant, or if they truly trusted in Christ, or they're truly following through on their word, what's going to follow their words? Yeah, actions. You can look to see if their actions line up with their words. You can see if they walk the talk. Isn't that what the Apostle James is saying? Your spiritual words, if not substantiated through behavior, are dead. It just means their heart really isn't in it. If Ruth truly meant what she said back in chapter 1 about caring for her elderly widowed mother, it's going to result in action. What happened? Ruth got up early. She took the initiative to go green grain for less than what we'd probably consider minimum wage. And what did the foreman observe about her? It says, she remained from morning until now. So she'd already been working there for hours. I'll tell you, while growing up on the farm, I got to deal with a lot of barley whole lot of barley, way more barley than I wanted to deal with. Barley is a dirty, itchy grain. The heads of barley themselves have long, sharp ears on them, and they get tangled in everything. They get in your clothes, they get in your neck, they get in your belt line. It's difficult to beat out grain, especially without a machine. But she's been there. She's been working for hours. The house that she's now resting in for a, for a short period is probably a, a shelter that is erected in the field uh, temporarily to protect from the sun. Probably isn't a home house like we would consider. But she's not only said that she'll provide for Naomi, she set her mind to do the work of providing for Naomi. She's walking her talk. And the foreman knows what hard, look, hard work looks like, right? I mean, they have reapers that come in from out of town and seasonal and other things and he's seen people that tend to slack and he's seen people that work really hard and he's seen those who are working like their next meal depends on it. So he gives Boaz the nod. She's a real deal. Gives the approval toward Ruth. And now Boaz makes a personal decision to reward her. All that he's required to do is to leave the corners of his field. That's what the law required. Leave the corners for the widowed and the alien, the poor and the alien. But he sanctions special treatment for Ruth. In verse 8, 
Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Those are the ones who prepare his food. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Because you don't need to stay in the corners. Indeed, I've commanded the servants not to touch you when you are thirsty. Go to the water jars and drink what the servants draw. So Boaz gives her these instructions. Stay close to my maids where you'll be safe. Watch them and what they do. They're professionals. They're going to show you the most efficient ways to knock out this grain and to collect it. Then my servants, they aren't going to strike you. They aren't going to send you away. They aren't going to insult you. They're going to bring your water. My servants are your servants. Boaz extends grace. In verse 10 it says, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Basically, I don't deserve grace. Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Boaz replied to her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work. And may your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to seek refuge. Boaz reveals that he's heard the whole story. How she left her people, how she came to a place that she didn't know, how she came to make his God her God, and his people her people. Perhaps most impressive at all, Boaz doesn't proclaim his own greatness in this matter. He doesn't attribute his generosity about how marvelous he is or what a great reputation he has in the community. He doesn't say, young lady, you should know how fortunate you are to have stumbled upon the field of Boaz. No. He doesn't attribute his benevolence of his impressive resume at all as if she should marvel at Boaz. Instead, what does he do? Two primary things. First, he rolls out her resume and acknowledges his respect of her. Does he walk the talk? I bet he does. In the mindset of a mature Christian, they're quickly dismissive of self and quick to esteem others. And in Boaz's mind, who gets the credit when Ruth wants to thank somebody? Boaz says, may the Lord reward your work. He says, your wages are not going to be full from me, but full from who? The Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to seek refuge. Ruth didn't come to Bethlehem of Judah in order to seek refuge under the wings of Boaz. She came to seek refuge under the wings of God, the God of Israel. She was having trials. We have trials. When we face trials, under whose wings are we seeking refuge? Are we seeking refuge from a wealthy relative? Are we seeking refuge from the church? Are we seeking refuge from the government? Are we seeking refuge through the lottery? 
I've seen that. I've seen people, close people to me, that have been in dire financial circumstances and they take their last 20 bucks and go buy 20 tickets and they think that the lottery is going to provide for them. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Are you like Naomi and Ruth going to seek refuge under the wings of the Lord and let the Lord decide how he's going to provide for you, possibly through using some of these ways that you're not expecting? But Ruth responds with sincere gratitude. She says to him, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I'm not like one of your maidservants. She didn't say, yeah, you're right. I'm probably probably the best daughter-in-law I'd ever lived. No, she humbly deflects the praises of Boaz and acknowledges she is undeserving of grace. That's what this is, is grace. I remember shortly after coming to faith, I was visiting a local church. Rita and I were trying to find a church that would teach sound doctrine. We were very new. Um, But the pastor here was an evangelical pastor, um, solid in the Lord. And the first time he met me, he took me into his office, and he passed along some of those diagnostic questions. And he said, uh, if you were to die today, if you were to stand outside the gates of heaven, why would you tell someone there that you should be let in to the gates of heaven? And I looked at him, thought of myself, There ain't no reason I should be allowed in here. I had to be a recipient of grace. We should be deeply affected by observing the humility of both of these individuals. Scripture says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. We rarely observe genuine humility in our culture today. It's hard to say, but let's just say it. We live in a very boastful society. We live in a society that loves to talk about self, loves to display self, share pictures of self, doing wonderful self things. So much that we do is saying to the world, screaming at them, saying, Look at me! It's all boasting. We've really got a prideful culture. Very prideful. That's sin. By comparison, Christians strive to deflect focus away from self and towards Christ. My Savior is a great Savior. My God is a great God. I am a humble servant who does not deserve grace. It isn't done. Boaz isn't done pouring out his grace upon grace. Look at verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come to here, that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain, and she ate and was satisfied. She was full, and it says she had a doggy bag left. When she rose to glean, that means lunch over and she is back to work. 
Boaz commanded his servants, saying, Let her even glean among the sheaves. Don't insult her. Also, you shall purposefully pull out from her from some of the grain of the bundles and leave it behind. Do not rebuke her. From time to time, before we continue as well, you might hear this passage preached, this uh, section, and someone will interpret this as saying that Boaz is flirting with her. You hear that on the radio? Turn the station. Boaz is a man of distinguished character. He's a man of God. He's not making advances, romantic advances, onto a young girl young enough to be his daughter on the very first day that they met in front of all of his workers in the field. That's not what's going on here. What he is doing is extending grace to someone who he cares about now, knowing the situation with Naomi. What the rendering does suggest is that Scripture elevates Boaz as a role model who goes way above and beyond any generosity that is demanded by the law. He is a man of grace. What's required by the law? We all know this now. Two chapters into the book. Leave the corners of the field. That's it. Leave them. That's all. But for Ruth, he decides to go way beyond that. And there are three particularly important points that should be made here. And the first one, it's an obvious one, is that achieving the demands of the law, achieving the level of the law, does not equate to moral excellence in Scripture. Abundantly surpassing the law equates to moral excellence in Scripture. Boaz didn't view the law as a lofty goal that perhaps... I'll reach. He exceeded it. Stay with my maids. My servants will not touch you. They'll get you water. Not just a barley loaf. You're going to get the vinegar dip as well. You get roasted grain. You get a full doggy bag leftovers to take back with you when you're done. The law didn't demand any of these. By offering the best of his flock... Uh, 10% to the tabernacle, leaving the corners of his field as well. Uh, these, along with other tenets of the Mosaic Law, they, they didn't represent moral excellence. They were the bare minimums. You had to do it. If you didn't, you were under the provisions of the law. You were guilty. Everybody was supposed to do that. What made Boaz great making him a mighty man of valor, is that he was willing to go beyond what God had required of him through his word. So today, we know that we're under the covenant of grace. Christians give to each ministry as the, world, as the Lord prospers you, as he provides to you as you are able. But the indication of excellence in financial giving is the same in the New Testament as it was in the Old. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. 
He commends them because they went beyond, as Boaz did. They gave liberally, they gave beyond their ability. And Paul commends the church in Philippi because they gave with abundance. Abundance is how Boaz gives in this situation. Folks, this is one reason that grace is so superior to law. So incredibly superior to law. Some would like to put themselves back under the law. We see that all the time. People want to go back to adhering to the Sabbath. They want to go back to, well, the legalistic requirements that they want. They don't want to go back and start sacrificing red heifers again. They want to pick and choose what they want to go back, put themselves under the law again, what tenets of it. I do not suggest that, by the way. Galatians would stand firmly against that. But they'll say to themselves, you know, sometimes, uh, though Christians aren't under the law, I'm going to make a personal vow. I'm going to make a vow to pledge. Maybe I'll pledge a percentage. Let's say something just random, even number, 10%. The problem is, for someone making $20,000 a year, 10% is a huge sacrifice for that individual or family to give. Now, for someone making $200,000 a year, 10% is not a huge sacrifice of their living ability, of their, of their provisions. Do you see the inherent weakness in the law? Do you see how much better grace is than law? Now, if you give 200K, or you make 200K and you give 20 away for a tax deduction, live off the other 180K, I would say you're a very generous person, first off. That is very generous. But you're not suffering through it. The person who has the 20,000 and gives two, they are suffering, struggling, trying to make it. That's the difference between law and grace. This is why the woman who gave her last two mites, the two copper coins to the temple treasury, was so highly esteemed by Jesus Christ. She gave it all. 100%. 10% isn't the ultimate sacrifice. Though for some lower income people it might be. It sure might be. But Boaz did not become known as a mighty man of valor because he sought to give the minimum. He's known as a mighty man of wealth. He's a very valued member of his spiritual community because he's willing to go far beyond what the law required. Boaz is an Old Testament embodiment of grace. This is what grace looks like to us, extended through Jesus Christ. It goes way far beyond anything that we deserve. Scripture says the law came through Moses Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. It's way better. Way better. A second very significant point that we must acknowledge in this passage is that both the provider of assistance and the recipient of assistance are equally portrayed as models of excellence in this passage. Both are to be admired. Both are esteemed for their character. And the recipient of the handout, which would be Ruth, you want to call it that, is depicted as having just as much dignity in this passage as the person who's able to give to her. 
It doesn't distinguish between who has and who has not. All are valued in the passage. All are esteemed and are good models for us as we chart our lives. Third, Boaz reserves and enjoys the right to extend with liberality where he so chooses. As an esteemed Israelite, he surely has already given his required portions. He's under the law. And he's met the required sacrifices, the first fruits, the unblemished lamb, etc., etc. But this charitable act towards Ruth is recognized as being more than typical. It's more than standard. Boaz chooses to extend his extra measure of grace where he so desires. Certainly he couldn't have done this for everyone. He could not have done this for every person that walks by. His field would have been overrun. He would be known to be the place where everybody goes, they overrun his field, next thing he's broke, and he doesn't have anything to give to anyone at that point. So the corners of the field were left to the basic needs of the poor and the alien, the stranger, Meeting basic necessities, especially of food and clothing, should be the objective of churches. Again, Paul said, with food and covering, with these will be content. So the existence of a, a basic food pantry and basic clothing and hygiene supplies are items that we would always want to strive to have available when keep people come to knock on our door. The church is never tasked in Scripture with meeting every single request, every single type of request that comes to our door. We don't have to give away the farm, as Boaz says. You have to maintain your financial integrity in order to continue providing. Like Boaz, we exercise this discernment. We identify a need. We want to go above, above and beyond, either on an individual level or on a corporate level together, we're, we are allowed to do that. We're free to do that. And I'll say this in a very practical sense, so you guys can understand. We are routinely get phone calls uh, nearly every week here at church with people who are requesting us to pay their rent. A lot of people have never been here. Um, I'll typically ask if their home church is helping at all. No. I'll say, well, where do you go to church? When's the last time you went to church? No answer don't have any background, don't know who they are, what their habits are, where they go, where they come from. No references and no history. And they want us to pay their bills, rent bills, things like that. We can provide them food and covering. That's what we, we need to provide them. If we were to provide, pay for the rent to every, for everyone who were to call the church, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to maintain it we'd be broke immediately because the word gets around them that this church is the one that's giving out everything. So basics are very important as they are Old Testament, New Testament. We need to be able to provide that food, those hygiene products and other things so that people can eat, so they can have covering. But there needs to be discernment. There's been times when a person would call and they want their rent paid and can't give any background information I've been asked to give my credit card number over the phone before, believe it or not. I don't know how many churches they call and how often that's successful. Um, but you're, you're able to discern 
what you can give. And I said, like Boaz, we can give the corners of the field to everyone. You've got to have that. But then there's other circumstances where someone who we might know might attend here regularly, might keep their kids involved in the program, Sunday school, Awana, getting them to know Christ and might fall on hard times. Are we allowed to give them more than the gleanings in the corners of the field? Are we allowed to say, we love you, you're a brother, you're a sister? That's how James describes it in his, in his writing. If a brother or a sister is in need, we can reach out where we feel we need to and extend the grace further. That's what Boaz does. He's just discerning. Provides some to everyone. Extends grace to those where the Lord leads him to extend grace. Well, God extends an extra measure of grace to Ruth through Boaz. Then, then what? She doesn't just call it a day, does she? She continues to work into the evening. Verse 17 says, So she gleaned in the field until evening. That means she worked late. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. Means she worked hard. And it was about an epha of barley. It's quite a large amount to gather in one day. It's about 30 to 40 pounds for one individual to, to gather, to shake out, to separate. To give you a perspective on that, a daily ration of grain in this period for a male worker in the field was between one and two pounds per day. That would be a food ration of grain. That would be allowed. So she goes back with 30 to 40 pounds. She's got at least two weeks worth of meals for her and Naomi. She has extra in order to trade if she goes to the marketplace to get some meat. Um, The harvest has just begun. This is day one. Verse 18 says, She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left, after she was satisfied, that's the lunch, the roasted grain and such, and the vinegar dip. She shared what was left from her, from her lunch in Boaz, from Boaz, which he provided to her and her mother-in-law. Results? Two weeks of grain reserves, which she can use how she wants to use them. Maybe the most important thing of all, the dignity of having done part of the work to earn that. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, it says something that seems, in a way, offensive to us, the times we look at from our culture. And it says that if a person is not willing to work, neither shall they eat. Is that for our benefit? Is that for the church's benefit? Now it also says if they're not willing to work. It doesn't say if they're not able to work. It says if they're not willing to work. That's for their benefit. The dignity of providing for self is something we've lost in our culture. The dignity that comes from getting up in the morning and going out and working is something that Ruth was able to experience along with the grace of God, the abundant blessing of God. How does this work at Port St. Lucie Bible Church? We do give monthly to uh, Salvation Army. Very often, if, we don't have a pantry here, at least not yet. We give to the Salvation Army. I try to redirect people to the Salvation Army as we contribute there. 
We also uh, have people who give from time to time to Benevolence Fund in which we get, uh, we buy cash cards at Walmart, maybe $25 cards, and if someone comes to our door, you can tell. You can really tell the people who are really working church to church and the ones who want to eat. And uh, we extend grace that way. They can get hygiene products. They can get what they need. Um, this is how we fulfill it at this time. Could we do more? We could do more. We're working with what we have now. We're working with the space that we have now. There may potentially come a time where we have a pantry. It would be nice to be able to hand groceries to people. If we can find the space to do that, That would also give everyone a chance to participate. And you're like, well, how do you do that? How do you manage that then? How do you manage when people come to your door and asking for things and they just don't come over and over and over and over again and deplete your reserves again? Well, Gerald and I have talked about that. And one way, there's a couple of easy ways. One is if you have a well-stocked pantry with, with, uh, with goods, canned goods, those types of things, you can give people a, uh, a pass to get in if they come to church. Say our pantry is going to be open on Tuesday. You come to church on Sunday, we'll hand you a pass for a box full or cart full of groceries. They actually come, they hear the gospel, they go on. Another way we could do it is if uh, that were to ever happen at some point, we're able to reach out to the community and make uh, available the basic needs of food and covering. They're just basic needs. We're not intending to give away TVs and you know all kinds of stuff. But if we're able to reach those in need, and there are people out there in need. There very much are. We've had people come to the door that just want some cans of food. What you could do is, if the pantry's open in the afternoon on Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever, have a Bible study before that and say, you come to the Bible study for an hour before, we'll let you have a cartload of these goods. So that is the way it can work. We are filling that void. I think it is very important through the spirit of the Old Testament, through the spirit of what we see with Boaz, to provide to people. The Spirit is carried on into the New Testament. People who are hungry, the alien, the widow, the person who can't work for themselves, the person trying to get back up on their feet. Very important that we have that compassion involved. Compassion of Christ. All right? Let's pray. Lord, I find it a challenge, really, to look at Boaz and to see his heart, his heart of being willing to give to uh, two widows, Lord, that have fallen on hard times. So difficult sometimes in the sinful flesh to want to be more and more generous to those who are in need. Lord, I pray that you would would not only help us to be more generous, I pray that you would bring the people who need to our door so that they would also, Lord, be able to hear the gospel. They'd hear about Jesus Christ and learn about the scriptures and learn about sin and redemption. Lord, we're thankful for people like Ruth who will care for uh, someone who can't care for themselves and a sacrifice of their own time, their own liberties and get their hands calloused and providing for another Lord. What wonderful models of excellence you've provided to us in your word. Dear Lord, dear Lord, as we leave here today, as we seek to honor you in everything we do by spreading your word, by telling others about Christ, about meeting 
the reasonable needs around us, Lord. Help us. Help us to love. Help us to put ourselves aside and reflect you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.